You're listening to TLC, The Light Conversations, and I'm your host, Jada Del Drago. This is a podcast series about well-being and creativity. I'm most interested in speaking to people who combine the two, but I'm really reaching out to experts in well-being, therapy, healing, as well as creatives and artists who are looking at the themes of wellness and, and health, and in particular, mental health at this time. Series two is called Emerge and Evolve, and I'm making it as we literally emerge and evolve after a very intense year and a half, nearly two years of pandemic lockdowns around the world. Some countries are still in lockdown. Some people are still in lockdown. I feel really grateful that now in the UK, we are living something that feels like a more normal life again. Um, but I've just reached out the the last episode with Yoav in South Africa. He they're just coming out of lockdown now. So, yeah, it, it's still a weird time around the world. But there, there feels like more hope in the air, and I'm interested to hear from experts about how to make the most of this time as we emerge and evolve. Now, these experts that I'm reaching out to are not random. It's not just like I'm, I'm going, ooh, that seems an interesting person. I'm going to reach out to them. I'm actually going through my own personal little black book. Everyone I'm interviewing for Series 1 and Series 2 is either a uh, teacher that I've studied with, a colleague that I've worked with or uh, studied with, um, or somebody I've been a client of, i.e. everyone I'm interviewing is somebody I personally know and um, respect, admire, and love learning from or with. So uh, just, to, um, just to give you a sense of, it may seem a bit random, the eclectic um, collection of people I'm interviewing, but they're all people that um, have helped me in some way or another along the way. And so during the lockdown, it was so wonderful to reach out to people I knew um, could help me with their wisdom and advice, and I knew anyone listening might benefit as well. So this time round, I am very delighted today to speak with Tom Cotton. He is an executive coach, psychotherapist, and filmmaker. Tom and I studied together at St. Martin's College of Art and Design, and we both went on to have careers in film and television. Tom has written and directed several films, and I'm really looking forward to catching up with him after so many years and learning about his journey from filmmaking to psychology. Tom is an EMCC accredited executive coach and a UKCP-registered existential analytic psychotherapist. He is co-founder of Narrative Dynamics, a leadership consultancy that has a special interest in ethics, and he is an associate member of the Northwest London Psychotherapy Centre and Therapy Harley Street. Previously, Tom was clinical lead of a residential treatment program in London, and his published research has been presented internationally. He gained psychotherapy, Master of Science, and Psych-D degrees from Roehampton University and his certificate in executive coaching from Tavistock Consulting. 
Before his training in psychology, Tom worked in the film industry for 15 years as a screenwriter and director. Both disciplines come together in his passion for helping people see the world around them more clearly. Let's connect today with Tom Cotton for this episode of TLC The Light Conversations. I'm here with Tom Cotton, psychotherapist, executive coach, and founder of Mind Environment. Um, after many years spent working in film as a writer and director, you've moved into psychology and coaching, and I'm super excited to talk to you about that journey today and to maybe find the, the link between your creative background and your psychology and coaching life today. Um, so let's backtrack a bit to where we met, which was St. Martin's. Um, tell me a bit about your life as a filmmaker after college and how you got into psychology. Mm, good question. Well, lovely to be here and really good to see you again. Um, so we met at St. Martin's in 1996. We were both studying on the film program. Um, and uh, Long Acre in Covent Garden, which is no longer there. It's H&M now. <laughs> H&M, exactly. Um, so, um, and gosh, that was a long time ago. So I... Um, I worked in film after after that. I was a music video director for a while, and then I began writing feature films. Um, and uh, what I, I forget exactly the the length of time, but it was quite a long time developing and writing uh, feature film projects. Um, and actually, writing is not my it's not my natural métier. Um, Writing feature films in particular is very difficult. Um, it's, it's a craft that I hugely respect um, and not one that I excel at. Um, and I suppose, um, actually, I, I kind of learned on that journey that I'm, I'm a sort of a visual stylist um, and uh, that I, I love uh, the representation of emotion and uh, image and music and sound design are hugely emotionally evocative. Um, but to be a really good writer, I think you've, you've got to be very sort of structurally disciplined. And screenplays are a fascinating form because you have this very, um, you have this very tight pre-prescribed canvas that you can work on, 90 pages to maybe 120 if you're lucky. Um, and so that means that you have to become really good at telling a story without committing any words to a page. Um, and so that means you have to tell a story psychologically. You have to. So I mean, ever, obviously, any great writer, any Dickens or Shakespeare or Dostoevsky, um, is is a wordsmith, is a word stylist, and obviously they also they tell a story psychologically, so structurally. Um, but film, uh, you have to be you have to be particularly adept at that. Um, and so that led me into the psychology of characters um, and a little bit into uh, philosophy. And that um, bit by bit um, led me down a path where I became more and more interested in psychology and wanting to, to train in psychology. So you then signed up to do a master's and had a research project based on a psychiatrist, R.D. Lang. I want to know more about that because that led to a few films 
on the psychology subjects, right? Yeah, so there was, there was a number of connected uh, projects. So, um, I mean, I should say, actually, before I went to film school, um, I, I had a kind of a foot in both camps. So my, my very first uh, career, because I've been through a number, um, my very first career trajectory was working as a scenic artist on films and commercials and TV projects. Um, this is at the end of the 80s. And, um, and then after that, I worked in a psychiatric hospital near Reading, which was an incredible eye-opening experience, quite shocking. Um, and I did think about doing a psychiatric training. Um, I felt really engaged with the work. I felt very passionate about it. Um, I, I felt really saddened by um, the state. I mean, this, this is a sort of proper old Victorian institution. Um, and um, I felt really passionate about the level of care um, and how much a lot of the uh, patients that we work with were overly medicated. Um, and uh, so it was something that I was thinking about coming back to, but I hadn't really sort of decided on what path I was going to, to take. Um, so after having worked in film, I kind of came back to it. Um, and when I studied on the master's, I suppose, uh, the master's program at Roehampton University, um, I was equally interested in, you know, research as a medium to explore ideas that I think are interesting and important. And for me, psychosis was something that I was really interested in. Um, and stories um, and film media is another way of exploring research, disseminating research. Um, so I got really interested in the work of uh, the psychiatrist and psychoanalyst R.D. Lang who was um, a controversial figure in the 1960s, particularly in his work around psychosis. Um, and, um, but I think actually, sadly, rather um, maligned after that. Um, but he's a hugely interesting and was a very enlightened figure. And you can trace a, a lot of say, the, the service user um, experience perspective and um, why that has become um, more important in the, in the body of research to people like Lang that were part of that movement, more kind of ethical treatment of, um, uh, I hesitate to say psychiatric disorders because that's a kind of a politically loaded term um, and maybe we'll come on to that later, but, um, but essentially he was an influential figure and he was very interested in existential philosophy, psychoanalysis, um, and then the areas of, of thinking that I'm particularly interested in, like uh, like uh, Jung and Lacan and uh, that kind of thing. Um, and from that piece of research... Wait, wait, so wait, wait. What, is kind of what is that kind of thing? What is that kind of thing? What um, You just said a name? Oh, sorry, I mentioned that. So the, the uh, psychologist, the death psychologist, um, Carl Jung, Oh, Jung, um, yes. Jung, I remember yes. I discovered him when at film school, actually. Okay. Well, yes, and exactly. So um, he, uh, people in the, in the story world are very interested in, in Jung because um, his work influenced um, ideas such as the, uh, the hero's journey, um, sort of where Jung meets Joseph Campbell um, and um, 
uh, and actually he's, he's a very interesting um, psychologist um, to look at when, if you're interested in, in stories um, and the mechanics of stories. Um, and so that particular film project was uh, researching Lang's experimental, very idealistic uh, community called King, Kingsley Hall, which is in um, East London. Um, and it was this incredible space where um, the idea was, it was highly utopian, the idea was that people who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, who uh, had been hospitalized, um, could live in a community with um, uh, people who were trained psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists, um, but without that kind of traditional doctor-patient relationship. In Lang's early work, he was really interested in just the power of communication, you know, rather than telling somebody what their disorder is and then medicating them. Um, actually, it might be quite a good idea to listen to somebody's experiences, um, listen to their story. And so that was the sort of guiding principle behind Kingsley Hall. There was a number of different uh, social experiments like that um, in America, the Soteria Project, Lauren Mosher, um, explored a similar kind of principle. And of course, it being the 1960s and it being a utopian project, um, it, it became completely crazy. Um, and um, it was a, a really fascinating time. So part of the research was academic research, and I interviewed um, uh, some of the people, surviving people who were involved in Kingsley Hall, um, and then that was the, the sort of the basis for a documentary and feature film project. So we were really lucky. We got some funding from the Wellcome Trust um, at the beginning to to do the research, which was it was a pretty time-consuming project, but uh, um, and then later. From that there was a screenplay, um, which uh, which was called "Do Not Adjust Your Mind," um, and uh, we were shortlisted actually for an award at the uh, for the Sloan Award, which at Sundance. The Sloan Award is um, uh, for scientific projects, um, but sadly, um, as is the fate of most feature film projects, we never went to production and uh, so that kind of um, we got stuck in production hell um, and that film never got made uh, but there was an accompanying documentary project uh, called There's a Fault in Reality which we did make and it changed tack slightly um, in that um, rather than the subject being people who'd gone through this Kingsley Hall experience um, I decided that a, the best way of exploring Lang's work was looking at the experiences of three people in the present um, who have had a schizophrenia diagnosis. And so there were two people, really wonderful, inspiring people, called um, uh, Jackie Dillon and Peter Bullimore, who are, who are quite important figures in the Hearing Voices Network. And Hearing Voices is uh, it started as a service user network where people could come together and talk about their experiences, but it's um, it has uh, evolved into a network that's practitioners, it's people that have the experience of psychosis, um, doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists. So really, really interesting network, and they're two very um, they're vocal and really inspiring figures. And the third person was uh, a lovely guy called. John, who I'd got to know through those connections, 
who was um, in the in the midst of a, a schizophrenic um, episode and had not really come out to the other side of it. I absolutely love the Welcome Collection. It definitely captures wellness and creativity combined. What was it like working with them? And um, tell me a bit about the Welcome Trust. They're great, actually. Um, so they are uh, support. So this was, um, gosh, I forget the exact channel. It was um, a media award. Um, and they have a sort of a fairly generous amount of money uh, to fund projects that fall within their, their remit, their sphere of interest. Um, and they're really good to work with, actually. Um, so the person, my contact there at the time was um, the person who was overseeing the, the project was somebody called Mary Wee Candy, who was wonderful. She's now sadly moved on, well not for her, she's she's an independent um, uh, science and media consultant, but uh, no, it was a great experience, it was really good. How was the, um, the, the process of studying psychology? Like, you weren't just doing research, I, I'm guessing you have to put yourself through a sort of process. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question because um, if you work as a psychotherapist, um, or bigger pardon, if you train as a psychotherapist, then um, the experience of the training really depends on what sort of area of the spectrum you engage with. So more of the behavioral end of the spectrum, the kind of the existential humanist end of the spectrum, or the psychoanalytic end. Um, where I was was, actually it was rather unusual, it was a, a psychoanalytic practice, um, but all of the theory, or most of the theory, was um, existential phenomena, phenomenology. I still can't say phenomenology, that, um, wow, that's, a, that's a, <laughs> tell me, what is existential phenomenology? So, uh, well, essentially it's the sort of uh, phenomenology uh, project uh, started by Edmund Husserl, which was the um, the study of subjectivity. Um, and the existential part is um, his uh, controversial student, Mike Martin Heidegger, um, who's, uh, I suppose, one of the 20th century's um, well, well, debatable, but one of the most interesting philosophers, but um, as I said, controversial uh, for lots of different reasons. Um, he expanded the uh, the phenomenology project into essentially the study of being. Um, and so if you're interested in critical theory, then uh, Heidegger's thinking might creep into your um, your kind of canon of thought that you might want to, uh, that you might use to dissect text or whatever it might be. Um, and so it was a really interesting way of um, developing a psychoanalytic practice, um, but being skeptical about the theory. So what are the limits of, of theory um, to uh, help one think about um, practice? Reason being, you know, Psychology, just like any other discipline, philosophy or uh, religion for that matter, gets very caught up in creating orthodoxies. Um, and branches of psychology are not that different to branches of um, religion. Uh, they, they vehemently 
disagree um, about how things work, um, which is interesting, but also can be quite tedious. Um, and so it was, it was just a really interesting way of um, thinking critically about how do you actually practice with another human being? How do you do the work with another human being? Um, and so arguably, you know, the learning is about the work that you do on yourself. So that's in experiential groups, otherwise known as the sort of a group therapeutic process. Um, and then in your own therapy, so making sense of your own uh, psychological material. Um, and let's face it, if you work in psychology, whichever branch, whether it's you know clinical or coaching, you're probably drawn to it because there's some stuff in yourself that you're trying to work out. Um, and so that's a pretty essential starting point, I think, making sense of your own experience, your own story, um, trying to push the boundaries of your own awareness because when you start working with somebody, the capacity to do harm obviously is, is just as potent as their capacity to do um, something useful for them. Yes, there must be so much unexpected. I mean, so you then embarked on a journey of setting up your, your personal practice as a therapist, right? So after I did the um, uh, MSc training at Roehampton, um, I was very lucky um, to work in a therapeutic community. It was a charity that had five therapeutic communities throughout the southeast. Um, and a therapeutic community is, it's a, it's a kind of an interesting treatment model in which essentially everything that happens um, in the community is thought about and digested and processed. Um, so whether you're washing up or cooking together or going for a walk or doing the shopping, these are all really amazing opportunities to think about how do interactions work. You know, rather than sort of sh shifting the focus away from what's wrong with you, how can I make you better? So actually, it's, it's not that different from the, the model that Lang developed. It's a sort of an attempt to put more structure around it and for it to, to be, uh, loosely speaking, I suppose, a bit more clinically rigorous. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed that approach of how can we how can we be thoughtful how can we how can we be mindful of everything that's going on in this community um, and I suppose that kind of spoke to um, a developing interest about systems and how systems work and I've become really fascinated with this by this idea in psychotherapy which is um, there's, a, there's a term that some people use which is the family has a designated patient. So the person who comes into psychotherapy or who seeks psychological or psychiatric support, um, they become the focus of the problem. Um, but actually, the reality is when you look at it, that they're holding something for the group, whether it's a, a family or a social group. But let's use the family as an example for the moment. Um, and so what happens in groups of people is really interesting it's really complex I've become actually really more and more interested in this idea that as human beings 
we excel at using tools, and we, you know, we think of these being the tools that we, we use, our phones, pens, whatever, machines. But actually, the most subtle and unseen tools that we use are how we integrate other people into our functioning. So how, uh, you know, whether it's positioning oneself in a group, you know, in a hierarchy, status, power, um, we are constantly incorporating people into our minds and using them. And we, we're not very good at thinking that because it's uh, thinking about it because it all sinks below a kind of a level of consciousness that we can think about. So there's a, there's a, a fantastic uh, philosopher of science called um, Michael Pollyani, who I became very interested in um, during my, my doctorate research. Um, who's thinking about uh, tools and awareness and um, what he refers to as tacit knowledge, which like Jung or Freud would refer to as, as the unconscious, then not directly interchangeable terms. But um, he talked about we, we know much more than we can tell. And I think that's a lovely way of looking at it. Um, so back to that question of, of kind of systems theory and what goes on within a social group, uh, a system, it, in order to understand what's going on within an individual, you need to see them within the context that they function within. And so if, if you're not, it's like trying to isolate one abstract piece and pull that out. And you can't because they're, they're, uh, individuals are constantly influenced by the systems that they're part of. You can't separate them. Um, and I suppose actually that, that idea then sort of brings me to a later development, which was um, setting up Mind Environment, um, which is a, a people development consultancy. We work with um, individuals and people in leadership roles um, and teams, organizations. <clears throat> and I think the principle is exactly the same. If you want to understand something about what's happening with an individual, you need to understand the broader context and the function that they hold within that broader context. So whether it's an individual in a, in a leadership team or whether it's an individual within a family or a social group, you have to understand how the broader system works. Um, and so in that sense, you know, we are part of an environment of minds. Environment has impact on us, it shapes us, but we also shape the environment. It's a two-way system. Um, and then when you drill down deep into it, all of this is an environmental system. These different elements at work in here, um, because I think this is the sort of the greatest re revelation that I had as, as a psychologist, is that we don't speak in a unified way. You know, I have a thought about an ideal or something that I would like to do, um, but actually impulses pull in the opposite direction. Um, and so then the question is, how can one how can one think about, become more aware of how the overall system works so that you can work with it more productively? Um, so I guess that was the beginning of that, that journey. Um, was, um, and I, was, I forgot to say earlier, I was, I was very lucky that I was able to um, take up the role of clinical lead in one of these uh, communities. And um, it, was a, it was a pretty extraordinary experience. Let's talk a bit about the, um, the intention of mind environment, providing a space for deep work in, a, in an inspiring setting. 
uh, where participants can discover more about who and how they are in the world by, what are the ways you do that? Uh, well, I was I was saying a little bit um, earlier, I think, about where the the experience of uh, running a, a therapeutic community and um, giving over a lot of thought to thinking about the overall system and how that works. Um, and one of the things I think was that was very useful about the way that the working day was structured was we would spend a lot of time thinking about what's going on in the community with the clients that we're working with, um, that they're bringing, but they're not communicating verbally, but there's a kind of a non-verbal communication that's either sort of happening through actions. So um, a great example was you'd be at a meeting in the office and, and somebody's trying to break down the door um, or set fire to the house. Um, it was literally, there was never a dull moment. It was an extraordinary place to work. Um, because we, we worked with um, we worked with a client group who, um, well, from a clinical perspective, some people would say were quite risky. The psychiatric assessment would be quite risky. So there were clients who um, were, their care teams were looking for a step-down service. So beyond prison or psychiatric hospital. Um, and so they brought quite a lot of risk with them. Um, and um, so we, we usually had contact with the emergency services um, a couple of times a week, whether it's the police or uh, fire brigade or ambulance. Um, and um, so we spent a lot of time as a staff team trying to understand what's not being expressed vocally, um, say, in a, you know, a therapeutic group. Um, but that we're taking on as as a staff team, and you know, the obvious thing to think about is it's pretty scary when somebody's trying to beat down the door, um, and how that then moves through the organisation. Um, and so, I suppose a little bit later on, as I, I got into my doctorate research, and I was thinking more about um, systems theory, um, and. Um, I got really interested in the idea, this idea that um, a, a human being is a lived environment. And so what you see on the surface is this kind of a surface presentation, but everything that informs that surface presentation, you don't see. You don't see the action of experience. You don't see um, the action of past trauma. You don't see all of the relationships that somebody's holding in their head that have informed all of their filters that then govern the way that the lenses that they experience the world through their perception. You know, you can drill down and down and down and down, deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and I suppose one of the things that I, I is a continuing revelation, I suppose, as a practitioner is just how complicated people are. I mean, it's it, it's so mind-boggling how complicated people are, and how complicated it is being a person. And I, I find it I find it extraordinary actually that we don't talk more about that. So we talk about mental health awareness as as if um, having a difficulty with mental health is extraordinary, you know, an exception to the rule. We often hear the statistic of, of one in four people in their lifetime um, experience some kind of 
um, mental health uh, problems. Um, but actually, I think the reality is if you're a human being and you've got a mind, then you've got a huge weight of responsibility. And being responsible for the functioning and operation of that mind is really complex and sometimes it's difficult and stressful. And then if you add you know, trauma or difficult experience into that system, it, it's absolutely no wonder at all that people, um, you know, they build defenses around difficult experience. Um, well, now I'm getting into a, a theoretical perspective here. This is subjective, but from my perspective, what makes sense is it's the defenses that we build around uncomfortable psychological realities that then later translate as psychiatric disorders. Again, as, as I said, that's a, a subjective view. Um, but more and more, my work led me in this direction where I thought, um, you know, it's mental health. Um, it's quite difficult to engage with. Either it's very academic um, and so kind of a bit impenetrable and not interesting. Um, or, um, or we tend to pathologize it. And so we don't want to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. Um, and I thought, you know, this is actually, you know, if you're somebody that owns a mind, which we all do, obviously, if we're conscious, we're alive, we're breathing, we're communicating, it's, this, this should be the most interesting thing in your life. The fact that you've got a mind and that you communicate with other people and that you have relationships with other people. Um, so I love nature. I love when I'm walking in nature, I want to know what all the trees are. And I, I find it really, it bothers me when I can't, when I see a tree that I can't identify. Um, and then when I translate that to the world of, you know, being in the world with other people, and I think of all of this stuff that's going on at so many levels, the whole time in interaction with other people, and I don't understand it and I don't know about it, it really bothers me. So I want to, so, um, so I guess my passion is sort of trying to understand that. Um, partially, as I said you know, earlier, if you're a psychologist or you work in related fields and you're trying to make sense of your own chaos, and that's probably what's brought you into it. Um, so I, I completely own that. That's part of, of my journey is trying to make sense of myself as a, as a human being and, and um, why certain relationships work in the way that they do. Um, and so I wanted, wanted to create an experience in which people could do, um, you know, much needed deep work, but take it out of the clinic and out of the corporate conference center um, into a place that is inspiring, um, that makes you feel alive, that feels like an adventure. Um, and so we started uh, a program, the first Mind Environment program we ran in October 2019 in this extraordinary privately owned um, mountain village with, um, in France <clears throat> in the southern Languedoc, which has 100 acres of its own land within a national park. So it's about as close to pure wilderness that you can get in Western Europe. Um, and it's this beautiful 16th century mountain village. So we ran our first program there, which was, it was pretty intense, full-on four-day program. And the theme of that program was purpose. So taking people on a journey where they could go deep, think about who they are in the world, 
how they operate, um, but crucially come out the other end with a plan about what is, now that I understand who I am in the world and what the obstacles are, I can also think about the opportunities and then build a plan based on that. Um, and so the thinking and sort of building on some of those psychoanalytic and systemic ideas, but also, um, I suppose, little pieces of philosophy and narrative theory, um, is um, how can we uh, get people to um, connect the, this, the kind of the head rational part, which we're really good at as human beings, whether it's... Um, you know, in one's personal life, we're in an organization setting. We, we, we cling to the rational because that makes sense and it's terra firma and we can understand it. But a lot of what's driving our choices and the way that we experience the world, and why we do certain things, our behaviors are driven at a level that we find very difficult to think about. And that's a, a, a kind of a realm of emotion, a lot of unconscious activity. So really the aim is how can we create a, a dedicated space four days intensively, help people make a connection uh, between these two realms. So we call that above, above ground, above surface thinking and below surface thinking. Join the two together and that's the whole mind environment. That's the whole environment. Um, and um, so we were very excited about that, and then along came COVID, and we couldn't run any more of those programs. Um, but we're running three next year. Everyone is supposed to deal with what we've just been through. No one's really talking about it. People are having like intimate conversations about like how tough it's been, mm -hmm. but but like on a, on a national or global scale, people aren't really like saying how are we going to evolve from what we've been. Like it's a it's a trauma on a big big level, and I'm super interested to hear what you think we can do to take better care of ourselves and each other at this time. I I think at the bottom line, it's always about communication, and where problems start to accrue is where there's a lack of it. So I mean, really interesting. Right. With, with the the whole experiment in remote working, um, the effect of uh, the effect for people working in organisations. So, in this kind of communication, I mean, given that we've had some audio problems and that's been difficult to hear each other, um, but it's really interesting. We can see each other's uh, faces, but in this two D representation, you're missing so much data that you would normally have in an interaction with another person. So body language is, is missing. Just that kind of sixth sense of sitting in a room with somebody and what you pick up um, uh, you know, on the most basic pheromonal level and all of the unconscious cues that you don't pick up um, through this kind of um, uh, interaction. And they, they really matter because that's, that's about the quality of interaction with another person. Um, so... What I think has, has tended to happen is people then work harder at that sort of conscious level. They tend to be more operationally driven. Um, and that's really exhausting if you're in that space the whole time. If you can't kind of just sit back into something that feels like a bit more of an intuitive style of, 
um, interaction. But it's had massive impact on, you know, just the sense of belonging. Where when you're in an office with your team, that feels completely different to, you know, a bunch of little thumbnails on the screen. Um, and that has impact. So what we've seen is, um, you know, a sense of belonging to organization, particularly new staff coming into an organization. Um, they're not embedded in it because they haven't had that kind of FaceTime interaction with, with people. And it has, it has consequence. Um, and I think particularly for younger people who are at the sort of, you know, more at the start of their career, <clears throat> you rely on the experience of being part of an organization um, to learn the culture of, of work. Um, and if your experience of that is through this medium, it's very different. Um, so it's left people feeling more alone. It's more stressful. Um, you know, I'm lucky that I'm working from an office today at home. I've got a dedicated space. But for people who don't, that's, you know, it's inherently more difficult. Um, people have become more cut off. And, um, you know, I noticed a lot of people talking about, you know, how to do social interaction. Yeah. I've never been particularly good at small talk by, myself, so I'm, I'm not great at it anyway. But uh, I found it, you know, it was so weird meeting people again. I don't know. I mean, I think it keys into something much bigger, which is we are in the middle of a huge global shift. Um, and I think... Well, part of the motivation for um, wanting to set mine environment, mine environment up at the beginning was, um, let me backtrack a bit, actually, because I've, I've, I've noticed in conversation with, with a number of colleagues um, over the last year or so, um, there was quite a lot of people after the 2008 financial crash who started to think you know, really seriously is this model working? Where's the world going? We've got some huge challenges coming our way. And I think the last, you know, the last 12 years have borne that out. It's, it's far more complicated, the world now, than I could have pictured 12, 13 years ago. Um, and I think something that has really preoccupied me is the level of challenge that we've got now whether you're an individual or whether you're in a leadership position, the, the level of awareness and consciousness that you need in order to be able to tackle the, the complexity that we're in now and the complexities that are coming down the line, we need to up our game as individuals and leaders. We need to think in a different way. We need to think in a much more joined-up way. We need to be much better at communication. Um, so back to that question of communication, I think being able to communicate openly about everything that's going on is really, really important. But in order to do that, um, I think one has to be quite careful about how one does that. Because as human beings, we're not designed for completely open interaction the whole time. Necessarily so. We, we, a lot of what is going on in us, we're not aware of filtering. Um, and some of it we may be aware of, and it's just not suitable. So, brings us full circle, actually, back to stories. Um, because I think 
to be a human being in the world, you're constantly curating stories about what you want other people to see, what you want them to know, what you're prepared to take in, the stories that you're prepared to understand. Um, and stories, when they become fixed, become an obstacle to awareness because you're, you're just used to going down a well-trodden track. And so awareness is how can I look, how can I look beyond those stories? So in that sense, um, actually, the, you know, the, the, the psychology and dynamics of story, I think, are such a valuable tool for looking at how, at how group psychology works. Um, one of my other obsessions is, is a story device that um, some theorists refer to as the visit to death. And this is the moment towards the end of the second act. You may be familiar with this idea or not. I'm not sure. We've never talked about it before. But it's the moment at the, at the end of the second act where everything seems lost. And it, it, it has a very, very important function. It's about letting go of the ego's ideal. It's about integrating the unconscious need. Because all stories, I think, are, they're, they're about people who make a journey in which they become aware of an unconscious need that they have to integrate into their goal. Um, and it's the moment where everything seems lost. It's the dark night of the soul. And you have to go through that in order to see the path ahead. It's, it's this absolutely crucial device that has to happen. Otherwise, you don't have an ending. And in one sense... That's what we've been going through for the last couple of years is this enormous visit to death as we're having to, we're having to look at everything again and um, we're having to let go a lot of, uh, of a lot of what we've taken for granted before. And it's opened awareness because we've seen the wider system at play, you know, whether it's just the, the really simple but obvious fact of, you know, there isn't an HS um, with people who aren't paid enough it's truck drivers who, um, you know, deliver everything that we rely on. Um, and I think we're on, on the edge of a, of a much bigger visit to death, which is the whole climate change uh, crisis. So you can see, in a way, the pandemic as a, as a, a really important um, rehearsal for this much bigger challenge that we've got. Um, that we're in. It's not coming down the line. We're there already. Before we wrap up this episode, um, please tell me what um, what the future looks like for you and Mind Environment. Mm, well, thanks for asking. Um, in terms of what the future holds, um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it'd be nice to have a crystal ball and to look into it. Um, I mean, certainly the aspiration is to, to run... Um, more programs um, and the programs that we're running next year uh, we're really excited about so um, the first program is at the end of April and it's called the Leadership Purpose Program um, and so that's a program for people in senior leadership roles um, I run the, uh, the group process which is at the core of the work that we do uh, with my uh, wonderful colleague uh, Andy Evanietz, who's a leadership consultant, um, and um, Andy uh, was the uh, director of organisation development at Unilever. Um, Unilever being a, a really interesting global 
corporation, but who are very interested in purpose um, and sustainability. Um, so that program is four days at the end of April for uh, people in senior leadership roles, and it's very small because to have a great quality of conversation, um, we we try to keep this program small. So that's for eight people. Um, and then the week after that in May, and sorry, I should have said that is in the, the uh, wonderful location that I was talking about um, earlier in uh, the Lang Southern Languedoc National Park. Um, and then the second program is the individual program. That's the first week of May. And that's for um, people who want to work on their personal um, and professional purpose. Um, and the kind of the, the focus of the program is helping people to get deep clarity on where they are, what kind of position they occupy in the world, who they are, um, and therefore what the obstacles are to um, making the world around them, their world, a better world. Um, and also discovering the opportunities that are untapped. Um, and with both programs, um, we, we start with a very similar process helping people to kind of map where they are now. And then we take them deep um, through a number of exercises and we incorporate um, outside environment. So hiking, um, we do some uh, really interesting things like felling trees and planting trees. So we bring the natural environment into the, the conversation. And we use them as, as ways of enhancing psychological processes. So when you need a little bit of contemplation time, after quite an intense group, we, we go and hike, and then we just see what settles. Um, and then with both programs, the object is to come out at the end with a plan. Um, and for the people on the leadership program, it's a, a plan for leadership purpose, which might incorporate vision for an organization. Um, and for the individual program, it's more of a personal plan. It may include um, a, a career plan. Um, and then the third program that we're running is called the Green Leaders Retreat. And that is in um, the Ardtornish Estate in the Scottish Highlands near Fort William. Um, Ardtornish is a, um, a 35,000 acre uh, privately owned estate on the shores of Loch Line. Beautiful, beautiful sea loch. Um, and they run a number of environmental initiatives there, including um, hydroelectric power generation. So the, that program is slightly different in that we are taking a, a group of leaders across the green sphere from uh, policy, science, uh, finance, PR, um, and uh, creating a space in which they can work on challenges together but crucially look at the kind of the psychological underside of what's driving some of the challenges and exploring where the op unseen opportunities are. Um, and then um, we, we've got a slightly different model. We're going to have um, some green thought leadership. So Hugh Raven, who runs the hydroelectric initiatives, is going to talk about some of the current challenges involved in running those. Um, and a, a brilliant writer called uh, John Grant, who um, co-wrote the Green Marketing Manifesto with um, the environmentalist Jonathan Porritt, um, and is the author of uh, seven other books, is going to be providing some thought leadership. Um, and so we're going to be thinking about 
challenges and opportunity and bringing together sustainability, uh, green vision and business. Amazing. The mind and the environment coming together there. Um, Thank you so much for everything you have shared with me today, from your filmmaking to your degree, to your research, to where you're at now. It's really interesting. Is there anything else you want me to know or you want to say? I don't think so. I don't think so. It'd be lovely to to resume the conversation at some point. Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much, Tom. Surrender to the moment, let it wash your